Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, April 21st, a day in which I always mark the anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto. Uh, most of my fellow Texans always say, remember the Alamo. I like to remember the one where we won, and uh, not to diminish what was done at the Alamo. And, uh, you know, funny thing about the Battle of San Jacinto, uh, the fighting officially lasted 18 minutes, and the casualties were something like nine on the Texan side. Uh, but even though the combat was over, the uh, Texans were in no mood to take prisoners at this point. They were pretty cheesed off after the Alamo and after uh, Goliad. So the final casualties on the Mexican side ended up being 700 and something. And most of them, you know, killed in the process of trying to surrender or retreat. So maybe it was not the most sporting moment in the history of that revolution, but still a glorious moment. And speaking of glorious, we're coming to you on a lovely spring day in Midtown Manhattan from Buckley Towers, National Review's World Headquarters, center of the vast right-wing conspiracy. But a very low chance of precipitation. Yeah, it certainly looks like it. But one of the glories of this country is that the different parts of it are so very different from one another. And you just returned from New Orleans, which is one of my favorite places. It's a good place to get into trouble, which I'm going to assume you did, but I won't press you too hard on that. So what did you see in New Orleans, Charlie? Well, I saw the bottom of an awful lot of glasses. Mm. I shudder to think how many. We spent two days there, and I'll be honest, a a great deal of that time was spent drinking. Mm. On the first day... We went uh, on the first day. We went to the outskirts of the town. I think uptown is called. It's yeah. the rich part, and we went for breakfast at this very grand-looking cafe that is inside something from the 1940s. And I've temporarily forgotten what it was called. It was that sort of weekend. <laughs> but that place was was fantastic, and the food in in New Orleans and the South in general, but New Orleans is especially good. Yeah. I ate alligator, for example, which was fantastic, and the fish is always is always great. But really, after that point, uh, our weekend was spent walking up and down Bourbon Street, trying as many of the establishments as we possibly could. We found a very cool place right at the end of Bourbon Street that's been there since the 1760s, I think. Which place? 1772. I knew you were going to ask me that. Mm. This is all a blur. Short-term memory is gone, yes. It was a sort of wooden shack, and it claims to be the oldest bar in the country. Mm. I'm sure everything claims to be the oldest bar in the country. But, uh, no, so we, we had some some of historical experiences like that then we had some sort of cheap New Orleans experiences where they set up a beach on the inside of a bar and there are girls and there's alcohol and there was sport on the television and there were all sorts of eccentrics and we ended up um, on the Saturday at a, a place called the Bombay Club hmm. which was a, a place after my own, my own heart British flags everywhere a sort of colonial feel and uh, I had a Pimm's Cup and I think the, I think the lady who served it to me was slightly nervous to hear me order a pimp cup <laughs> in my accent. But it was actually fantastic. It was really, really fantastic. So no, it was a, it was a lost weekend in the old parts of the 1970s. I was just thinking it must be a very appealing place to you because I know you're a bit of a francophile as I am. So you got that sort of southern aspect, the French aspect, and uh, kind of an all-American aspect. Yeah, and it's too. and it's just such a great country. Oh, it's so. The real meaning of the word diverse. Yeah. It 
it is so odd to be able to drive across a country this size and find so many genuinely different places. I think I wrote a piece about this a while back, which you mocked me for, actually, when I went to Pensacola in Florida. <laughs> and I'd been in, when I was in Mobile, Alabama, I drove across. And again, I was amazed at this place, which had been under five flag. That's how they sort of sell it. The Spanish, the French, the British, the Confederacy, and the United States. It wasn't six. Was it six? I think so. What's Maybe. the other one? I forget, but most places have the six flags. Well, Texas is six flags, I know, which is where the theme park chain's name comes from, because the first uh, one was six flags over Texas. But I forgot you're an expert on theme parks. <laughs> I am. My other hat, actually. We should we should do a podcast on this. On roller coasters, I'll bore yeah. everybody to death. <laughs> that and Disney, but. But no, in this place, it was fascinating. I mean, this, the place names are in English and French and Spanish. The architecture is a bizarre mix. You have the French balconies, as you have in Louisiana and in New Orleans, I should say. But then you have Spanish place names and you have sort of Spanish architecture. You have Spanish architecture with French balconies and oh. English uh, engraved in on the side. And off the coast of Pensacola, there are tens probably more of sunken ships it was a real shipwreck paradise and mm. you know people divers go down there and uh, it's a real sort of shipwreck tourism but the idea there's no history in America some of these ships are you know 500 years old now there are also ships that were sunk in the Second World War and in the early 20th century but no New Orleans has a similar feel it is obviously it has a, a very sad history in the last 10 years and it's amazing to me how much it has bounced back but you walk down Bourbon Street and outside of the touristy stuff it's it's just a hive of of history and and a mixture of cultures and and it's so it's so haphazardly constructed you know there's no there was no code (laughs) there were no building (laughs) regulations to say well are you going to quite put that there and uh, in some buildings there are just weeds growing out of the brick, but it, it's a, it's a, it's like France in that way. It's a, just a charming place to be. Yeah, you know, Santa Fe is like the opposite of New Orleans in the sense that they've got these really, really strict uh, planning and zoning laws, and they want to, you know, maintain their sort of adobe aesthetic yeah. throughout the city. So you've got ridiculous things like you know McDonald's and Seven Elevens built like you know adobe structures, and it's just. Uh, it just kind of makes me wince a little bit every time I go through there. It's it's a lovely city, but it's well, Cambridge, England, is the same way. Is that they have to build the McDonald's to look like old Dickensian buildings and you know sixteenth century, so Gothic McDonald's, right? So you can't put up a McDonald's sign in the center of Cambridge in England. They have this old-fashioned Victorian-looking street light that comes down and painted onto the glass is the M in black in black lettering. <laughs> That's ridiculous. So it is a glorious country, but it is not a uniformly uh, glorious country. And I had a piece over the weekend, which is still up today, about a disturbing and sad case here in New York where we had a fellow by the name of uh, Jerome Murdoch, and he was a Marine veteran and homeless, a guy who had some fairly serious mental problems, apparently schizophrenia and uh, bipolar disorder. He also had some uh, some real addiction issues, uh, you know, drank a lot, was arrested a few times for for drug possession, and he was you know homeless on the streets of New York. And like, you know, I guess it's about uh, something at least forty percent of our lockup population here are people with uh, mental illness problems. The vast majority of our of our homeless 
population, at least the ones who are you know sleeping on the streets, as opposed to the people who are in shelters and things like that, who are just straight up having economic problems. So he took shelter on a particularly cold night, uh, which we had a very bad winter here, uh, in an unsecured stairwell and housing project in Harlem, was arrested for trespassing, had his bail set at $2,500, which him being homeless just ensured that he wasn't going anywhere, was taken to Rikers Island. And Rikers Island, of course, is an infamous uh, lockup facility. It's got all sorts of problems from corrupt correctional officers uh, to gang violence to just widespread rape. It's a fairly terrible place. And it also has some more mundane problems, like the heating system doesn't work. So this guy was locked up in a uh, 6x10 cinder block cell, and because he was mentally ill, he was supposed to be checked on every 15 minutes. They just left him there for hours and hours, and the heating system was malfunctioning in such a way that it caused the temperature in his you know, brick oven of a cell, essentially, to uh, rise to what the man in charge called unusually high levels, which is a bit of an understatement. Uh, in fact, it got so high in there that uh, Mr. Murdoch was, in fact, uh, more or less baked to death. Uh, died in his, his cell there, wasn't discovered for hours after the fact. And then the bureaucracy takes over from there. You know, His public defender wasn't notified until several days after he died. They never notified his family, uh, who I believe found out about uh, their son's death when an Associated Press reporter called them to ask for comment on the case. And so a few people have been, you know, demoted or transferred to a different department. And my, my favorite slash least favorite part of the story is that uh, the person most directly responsible, the officer was supposed to be checking on him, was given a 20-day 20, 20 suspension uh, from his job. And when there was some outcry over that, they upped it to a 30-day suspension, which apparently under the law is the longest that you can suspend a uh, public employee in New York as punitive measure. So this is, you know, what strikes me as looking very much like a case of negligent homicide. You know, if you had left a child in a car for an hour uh, in the summer resulting in that child's death, you'd be charged with a serious crime. No one's probably going to be charged with anything here. And uh, the human cost of this, of course, is is enormous. Our, our prisons are a national scandal, and the way we treat people uh, who are incarcerated is a way that people, even very, very bad people, uh, do not deserve to be treated, and not to make everything a money issue, but it does occur to me that you know we spend a lot of money in the Department of Veterans Affairs. We spend a lot of money in New York for social services, for homeless people, for mentally ill people, for those sorts of things. And of course, we spend a lot of money in the criminal justice system. The New York City Corrections Department is pretty well funded, and uh, yet we can't manage to take one person who's got some serious problems, who's been arrested and get him the sort of help that he needs. Instead, we abandon him to these horrible conditions, uh, which resulted in his death. So it's a, it's a horrifying thing, and the larger point for me, uh, looking at this, is that uh, every time you put government in charge of something, you're essentially putting the Rikers Island model in charge of it. Now, Rikers Island may be an extreme example because it's a fairly nasty place, but this sort of unaccountable bureaucracy operating mostly for its own benefit, not for the benefit of the people it's allegedly there to help, is exactly how we run education. It's increasingly sure. now how we run health care and the rest of it. So I'd, I'd like your thoughts on that. Well, no, and I absolutely agree with, with your piece in, in that regard. But if possible, I'd just like to go one step backwards to the beginning. Yes. Now, I'm a 
staunch advocate of property rights, which pre-existed the state. Mm. And clearly, trespassing should be a crime. But is that the right punishment? Is that the right response? Is that a proportionate response to what he was doing, which strikes me as being categorically different from, say, somebody who were to break into my house or into this office? He was trespassing, yes, and there are laws. Are they the right laws? And I suppose the question that flows from that, and a difficult one for conservatives, and perhaps I'm down, going down the wrong path here, so tell me if I am, but we tend to like Rudy Giuliani, for mm-hmm. example. We tend to like the policies and the attitudes that cleaned up this city. Yeah. Are, is that admiration consistent with the sort of attitude that put this guy in Rikers to start with? Yeah, I think there's you know an important difference between the way we think about people who are you know criminals per se versus people like this guy who are criminals incidentally. Uh, yeah, I mean he broke the law, obviously, mm. and uh, but you know his problem isn't that he's a career criminal. His problem was that he was a mentally ill person. Sure, no, but I mean, but he was still sent to Rikers, right? So that law is a bad one. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the police have a measure of discretion, of course, in these issues. And uh, they clearly here, I think, made the wrong choice. When you've got someone who is, you know, deeply disturbed like that, the, uh, you know, the solution is not to lock him up in a cage at Rikers Island. It's to get him into a situation in which you can at least have a fighting chance at giving him the help that he needs. And we spend so much money on services for these populations that it's really shocking that, you know, from someone's point of view, it might have looked like Rikers Island was the best place to take him. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what the alternatives were that particular night in terms of beds at shelters and other facilities and things like that. But uh, it seems to me that if there weren't a good alternative available, that's as much an indictment of where we are right. as, uh, as right. the decision itself. So, so in that regard, if you're correct, the question becomes, why is Rikers so utterly awful? Yeah, well, I, I, another issue here that I think um, is is of some importance for us to talk about, which is how we got in the situation in the first place. So the, the situation with our homeless population, which is really you know mostly a mental illness problem and not an economic problem, is really a confluence of the worst kind of conservative thinking with the worst kind of liberal thinking. So in the 1960s, 1970s, you get this movement on the left for what they call deinstitutionalization, which is, you know, not thinking of mentally ill people as being uh, sick. Just thinking of them as being different. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of weird. And you have to go back and actually read the literature from the time. It's just, it's insane what people were publishing in psychiatric journals and, and, you know, reputable medical journals that um, institutionalizing people with these very, very severe mental problems was essentially a form of oppression. It was, you know, the man putting his model of the good life on other people. So let let me just interrupt there to ask this, because... I, I have a lot of sympathy for what you're saying, but the root instinct here, and libertarians are very much along these lines too in some quarters, the root instinct of suspicion toward those who would would claim mental illness as a reason for incarceration mm. is a good one. Sure. It is, it, there's a healthy skepticism here, and, I, and I'm thinking back to to France in the 19th century and especially to the Soviet Union where the authorities noticed that you could just say well 
this this person who is against the state is therefore insane. Right. I'm thinking of that string of insane thought on the on the gun control left, but people who want to own firearms are insane. Therefore, they shouldn't be able to own firearms because they're insane. And I'm yeah. thinking of the tendency now to add the word, for example, phobe to yeah. the end of anything and, and to criminalize or it. So, right-wing authoritarian uh, mental disorder was yeah. the big thing. In the oh, and, and, and yeah. it's always, uh, all uh, on Salon is always explained how the only reason conservatives think like they do is because their brains are this way or they're right, stupid. Yeah. So, so obviously there is, you know, the, the classically liberal mindset is is one that says in a great deal of cases, well, I might think this person is crazy, mm. but I, I'm not going to put them, um, you know, in, in bedlam. I'm not going to put them in, a, in yeah. an institution for it because different should be respected up to a point. But how do we draw that line? I mean, I understand that you're taking an extreme example yeah. and saying, but where, how, how do we try and square that circle? Because I, I struggle with that. Sure. Well, I think, I mean, we have to always admit that it's the case that any time you give the state the power to do anything, uh, that power is going to be abused. I mean, there's always going to be a trade-off there because people are imperfect and uh, and people, you know, will uh, seek to reward themselves rather than to, you know, use their assets to do what they're supposed to do with them. So we have to always assume that's going to be the case. In the situation with people who are, you know, severely mentally ill, um, though I have some distrust of the uh, psychiatric profession, uh, as a whole, when it comes to demarcating these sorts of cases, I think they're a pretty trustworthy authority for it. Um, it's it's not that difficult to tell when someone's got not you know some sort of mild mental illness, but a, you know truly debilitating mental illness that uh, you know results in a in more or less a break from from reality. So what happened in the '70s then, and the, and starting in the '60s really was this sort of liberationist deinstitutionalization movement ran up against fiscal conservatism essentially. And uh, people saw an opportunity to allegedly save states and cities some monies by closing down mental institutions and things like that. Of course, this was you know, penny-wise pound-foolish because we've ended up still incarcerating those populations, but in prisons and uh, jails and situations like what happened in Rikers Island rather than having them in, in hospitals. So, you know, my, my sort of version of, of conservatism is that uh, you know, what you want the government doing is providing you know, what economists call public goods. And that's, you know, the main thing you want to do, which is, you know, enforcement of laws, military, those sorts of things. But then you start looking at social programs like this, and I think there's probably some room for them, particularly at the state and local level. You really want to make a, uh, you know, descending level of, uh, of competence part of your guideline here. So you don't expect children to be, you know, responsible adults who take care of themselves, because they're not, they're children. So, you know, if you're going to have programs for things like food support or housing support, things like that, obviously children are going to be your first candidate that for that. People who are disabled are going to be candidates for that. And obviously people with, with mental illness are going to be candidates for that, too, because it's a situation in which, yes, charity can do a lot. And I suspect that charity actually probably could take care of, of a lot of this problem if we would sort of get out of their way. But if you're going to have these, you know, state-run programs as kind of a last line of defense against, uh, you know, indecency, against people being abandoned on the streets, uh, then certainly the mentally ill have to be have to be a part of that. And I think there's also just a, um, you know, a prudential argument for that from the conservative point of view too, because it's not one of those problems that's going to solve itself if it if it goes away. So if you're not doing it through 
proactive you know outreach and treatment and support for people with mental illness you're going to be doing it through police and courts and prisons and the former obviously i think is preferable to the latter and this actually is something i'm really quite proud of national review for uh rich lowry and uh some of the other writers here really made uh mental illness and uh, our abandonment of, of people who are suffering from it a, a real priority for something the magazine writes about and talks about and it's also you know you mentioned you know cleaning up new york uh you know, it's a, it's a real problem for quality of life in cities. Mm. Uh, you know, when it's not, I mean, the, the primary victims here, of course, are the people who are sleeping on the street and who are not receiving the sort of care that they need. But they also make cities more chaotic and unlivable and uh, and unpleasant places. Well, and, and it's very noticeable, especially to somebody who didn't grow up in the United States, when you get close to, and they are generally left-wing cities, Yeah, uh, you notice... Uh, how this attitude plays itself out. I mean, for example, when I last drove across Texas and I drove past Austin, mm-hmm. when you get about 20 miles outside of Austin's city limits, you just start to see people living under bridges and walking around with yeah. signs and saying crazy things. Similarly in San Francisco. Those are students, yeah. Austin. <laughs> Similarly, San Francisco. Yeah. Santa Monica is absolutely uh, full of, of homeless and, and mentally ill people. Now, I don't know whether that's the product of the instinct that you're describing, this latent instinct from the 1960s and 70s, but uh, it does seem to be. Yeah. Uh, and, and it I think you have to me. take weather into account there as well. Well, that's true. That's true. But, but no, but the weather's not particularly different in, say, San Antonio. Well, that's true. That's so true. it is the Austin welcoming, if you will. And, and, and Mario Loyola told me a, a hilarious story when he was living in Washington, D.C., and he said he almost... He wanted to kill himself because some guy on the Washington, D.C. City Council decided that what the homeless and mentally ill population needed, and he said there were a good number of them near his office, was musical instruments. And so one day they went around handing out sousaphones and violins and drums, and uh, the consequences were were rather predictable. I mean, the, the tension, though, that you've just described it does exist on both sides. It interested me earlier in the year, when the last year, when Toomey Mansion was being debated, mm. there was this consensus on the left that better mental health prevention would lead to lower gun crime and that Toomey Mansion and universal background checks were necessary in order to stop the mentally ill from getting hold of firearms and that the states needed to be forced to provide more information so that when the federal um, background check process was used, then, you know, say the state records would be included and more people would be denied. Now, simultaneously, President Obama and and his administration were pushing for less information to be available to employers because... His view, and I understand where he was thinking on. I mean, I don't, I don't begrudge this instinct, but his view was, well, you could be committed, you know, for one night in 1999, and then you could try and get a job with the government, and the government could say no. And as we found out with, say, the Navy Yard shooter, um, you know, the mental health component of this uh, is very important, and therefore we simultaneously had a president standing up and saying. We need to make sure that in, you know crazy people can't get hold of guns by strengthening the system and saying, well, we need to make sure that crazy people can have greater access to jobs and to government jobs and therefore to bases and so on. Um, 
you know, because crazy can be a temporary or can be a mistake and so on. So you have this tension on the left, but you also do have a tension on the right, don't you? Which is that Conservatives, the National Review has taken this position, I know Rich is very passionate about this, that we're really doing uh, the mentally ill a disservice with this sort of extremely libertarian view of what constitutes illness and how we should treat them as a society. But we also have uh, a, a healthy, if sometimes overblown, lack of trust in, in government and lack of trust in psychiatrists and lack of trust in people in positions of power to make that determination. Yeah. And again, you see it when it comes to suggesting universal background checks. Conservatives say, no, no, I don't want the government to have the power. Now, I think that especially with the more libertarian-minded conservative movement now, there would be a real pushback if you said we wish to give the state more power to incarcerate and to uh, force into medical treatment against their will people based on our determination of whether they're sane or not. Because it's not as if you can give them a blood test. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, this points to something I've been thinking about actually over the weekend and, and, and earlier, which is that, you know, you and I both you know use the term libertarian a lot, uh, maybe to distinguish ourselves from from other sorts of conservatives. But there are libertarians who are conservatives and there are libertarians who are not conservatives. Sure. Um, you know, I think you and I are both libertarians. You're conservatives. You know, well, because I'm actually a liberal, but right. they've taken my word, and so this is the closest that I can get to right, it. Yeah. So, but someone like you know, my my, my friend Nick Gillespie is a libertarian who's definitely not a conservative, right? Or uh, you know, David Friedman or, or someone like that. So, you know, for me, this the, the whole idea of liberty and individual rights and, and all of the stuff that we're thinking about in the operations markets, uh, you know, assumes a certain level of. Uh, Culture, for one thing, you know, of, of public institutions, not government institutions, but truly public institutions, things like, you know, the little platoons as they're, as they're known, and churches and families and, and social institutions. And it also presumes uh, certain kinds of individuals, um, you know, people who are able to operate in the free market, people mm. who are able to uh, operate as, you know, fully functional uh, adult human beings. Now, now, I agree with you entirely that we should probably be skeptical of the people in whose authority we are placing to make that decision, to say that this person is a competent person and this person isn't, and therefore this person's going to be taken under our custodial care mm. and these other people are free. But I think there are ways to go about doing that, you know, the same way we do it with other sorts of, of government institutions, you know, checks and balances and uh, competing interests in those sorts of things. So um, there are, you know, politically speaking, some engineering problems to minimizing the uh, potential for abuse and incompetence in a system like that, as there are, as there are everywhere. But uh, I think that the uh, the trade-off here, as uh, as a matter of judgment, is, is certainly worth it. No, and I, and I wasn't suggesting that it wasn't. I'm just, I'd be interested to see where the constituency for wholesale reform of this area would come from, because this is not an area in which the parties are going to line up in a predictable and coherent way, is yeah. it? Well, you know, here is something that, um, and just not to make this, you know, at the end here a matter of, of crass politics, but, I mean, there is some crass politics to be talked about here, and one of which is that conservatives and the Republican Party don't do very well among people who live in cities. Uh, they don't do very well in urban areas at all. But they actually, I think, have some things to offer hmm. to people who live in cities, as Giuliani showed. I mean, you know, New York is full of people who hated Rudy Giuliani personally, hated everything he stood for, and thank God every night when they go to bed that he was mayor. <laughs> uh, 
because you know I mean he and his administration really did save the city I mean there's it you, you really can't overstate it I don't think and I think that you know if Republicans got a little more aggressive about this sort of thing and uh, not in a um, you know not in a let's be Attila the Hun kind of way but coming in, in a really assertive way and saying look you know we've got a problem with mentally ill people sleeping on our sidewalks and under our bridges and it's bad for them it's bad for their cities it's bad for the communities it's uh you know it's it's a problem from a lot of ways okay and we'd like to come in and maybe not you know at the federal level but certainly at the state and local level and say look we really want to address this and we've got some principles and priorities here that we think would make sense I'm not sure that it would change the mind of a lot of you know people living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but you might get a few people hold their noses and say, I'd support that. Right, and, and I suppose my question, again from a devil's advocate position mm. here, is your piece over the weekend very well, I thought, addressed the problem at the root of government and public service which is that for a great number of people, it's not public service. Right. It's, you said mammon rather than malok. Yes. Uh, is that how you say that, by the way? I am Moloch, but Moloch. Uh, my pronunciation of ancient Semitic languages is not really all that reliable. So. My pronunciation of a lot of words, actually, because I read so much more than I than I talk and, and, and listen to the radio, and I don't really watch too much television, or at least I don't watch the sort of television on which words like that are enunciated. <laughs> <laughs> but... But conservatives would come in perhaps with the the driving force and they would come in with the energy mm. and the ideas, but it would ultimately those ideas would ultimately be implemented by the sprawling, self serving, union dominated bureaucracy. How do you get around that? Well I think that's the second part of the uh, equation, which is that you know, conservatives are always sort of, you know, concert accused of being Ebenezer Scrooge. And to an extent, God bless them for that, because we kind of are Ebenezer Scrooge, and I'm, and I'm all right with that. But there are situations like this in which we are willing and, in fact, eager to spend some money and invest some resources in trying to solve what is a real problem that um, is worthy, I think, of, of public attention. But the second part of that, of course, is you want to make sure that it works, and you want to make sure it's done effectively, and there's a level of accountability there. And I don't think in the long term there's any way for us around having a very nasty and bitter and long national fight over the role of unionized public sector employees who, whether it's in the schools or in you know state and local government or in places like Rikers Island, protect their members from accountability. Mm. You know, we had a case actually out at Rikers Island where there were two fairly senior correctional officers who were, you know, getting six-figure compensation packages who were charged with uh, not only abusing an inmate but uh, falsifying reports about it and then suborning their junior uh, employees to also falsify reports in order to bolster their story. And, of course, you know, they were on the payroll and insured and protected until the day that gavel came down and they were pronounced guilty of you know a handful of felonies, so we saw you saw the same thing in New York City with um, you know we had police officers here who were acting as enforcers for an organized crime syndicate, and uh, you know the union protected them until you know the very day they couldn't. So I think that um, 
And it's not just that. I mean, those are extreme examples. But, you know, what's the real problem with Rikers Island isn't that it's, it's not that people are going to be on the payroll until they get convicted. It's that there's never going to be any charges. That's there's the n- biggest there's problem. There's never going to be any accountability. No one's going to lose their job over yeah. this. And uh, it makes it really hard to do. So I think See, that, that, you know, that situations like the, this is the real point here. Because yeah. you can make a reasonable case based upon the principles of innocence presumption of innocence I, I think that this is can very often just lead to the sort of circumstances that you've just described but there is a case to say somebody is accused of something we presume that they're innocent we therefore keep them on the payroll we keep them with their benefits and their protections and so on and so forth until the point at which they're not innocent anymore and they've been found guilty but goodness me there is no argument for not punishing them and there's also in my view no argument for having said all right well now that we know that they're guilty we will go back and take some of what it was uh, that you know that, that we were using to support them. Right. You know those sort of things. I can't see a single argument against punishing people who've been found guilty extremely strictly as they would anyone else. Yeah, and of course, but the larger issue is that we don't have to just punish people for that. We have to fire people who are incompetent. Uh, you know, who don't actually right. get their but job done. But that's the done. same problem. Right? Yeah, it is the same problem. So, but I think that's something that conservatives can really offer as a trade-off, saying. Look, we'll put up some resources. We're putting up some money, but we expect some accountability on the backside. And uh, you know, it's one of those situations that's not going to make everybody happy. It's a second best solution, but second best solutions often are the best. And since we're talking about uh, New York stories today, I thought we might spend the last uh, you know few minutes discussing the three most surprising things I read over the weekend on the New York Times editorial page. <laughs> 